I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, James chapter 3, and we'll be looking at several verses in that chapter, so you need a Bible. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, so if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and those are marked at James chapter 3 for you, so you can turn right to it and follow along. The smaller your conception of God, the more you focus on only the large things in your spiritual life. To reverse that, if the focus of your relationship with God is primarily on the so-called big issues, it's because you view him as quite small. So many of us think that it's avoiding the big sins that are important because those are the things God really cares about. Now, we may have arrived at this false notion for an understandable reason. God gave ten commandments, all of which focus on big, obvious issues. Things like murder, stealing, lying, and so on. But you may recall that the first commandment is that you have no other gods before me. So that we are not to substitute anyone or anything for the place of God, including a God, small g, That's made in our own image, a God of our own conception. And I'm convinced that many people conceive of God as trying to multitask in heaven. He's doing his best to keep all the balls in the air as he juggles the responsibility of keeping the universe intact. So he cares about wars and famines and hurricanes and who's in power at any given time. He may eke out time to focus briefly on big stuff in our own lives. So those are the occasions when we'll call out to him. If we're going in for surgery or contemplating a career change or considering engagement or some other big decision. We think of God as one who cares about the extraordinary. But not the ordinary every day. No, really every minute details of our lives. And this is why we recognize and focus on certain kinds of behavior but too often ignore other supposedly smaller stuff in our own lives. So let me ask you, does God care about my demeanor already this morning? Does it matter to him whether I awoke with an attitude of ingratitude for another day? Not to mention the Lord's day. Does it matter to him how I've interacted with my family while getting ready at home and making the drive here? Does it matter to him how I've interacted with others already at church this morning? Or whether I've done that at all? Will it matter to him whether and how you relate to others during our refreshment time following the service? Does God care and have any focus on what you're thinking about this very moment? Friends, there is an inverse relationship between the size of your God And the size of the things on which you focus. The smaller your God, the more you'll focus on only large things. But God is too great to be only aware of the big stuff. And God is too good to be only concerned with the big stuff. The sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord God who made you, made this world and everything in it, He is fully aware of and fully engaged in the intimate details of your life. And the loving, gracious, faithful, merciful Savior God, who is remaking you and all that is in this world, loves you 
and what he has made too much. He cares far too much to ignore the seeming mundane moments of your life down to the very words you speak. God cares too much for his own reputation to ignore the way that we spend the majority of our waking hours. God desires and deserves every part of those that he has made. God sweats the small stuff. He's in the so-called little things, including the so-called little sins. And interestingly, the little sins are the most powerful and foundational. Sins of thought always precede sins of word and action. And God is the craftsman of our lives. And the best craftsmen sweat the details. They give attention to detail. The Bible says of us and God that we are his workmanship. And this is why the Bible is much more than the Ten Commandments. It's why the Ten Commandments are actually tied to two all-encompassing commandments. You remember Jesus was asked which commandment is the greatest, and he didn't cite actually any of the, the ten, but rather two upon which all ten depend. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God cares about the little things because he desires and deserves every part of our allegiance. And the seemingly little things are what give rise to the so-called big ones. Those little things include the way we communicate. Now, I've asked you to turn to James 3, where last week we began looking at the promise and peril of how we communicate. We saw then the first three points in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take that out. And those three that we looked at last week are at the top and they're grayed out. And we saw then that we must recognize three things about communication. You see there at the top the responsibility of communication, the power of communication, and the perversity of communication. Today we're going to see four additional points on this all-important subject. And it's all part of the series that we've been doing since the first Sunday of this, this year, titled Life in the Father's House. This series, of which today is the last message, has been about what the Bible says regarding what the church is to be and do. And the last four weeks have been about the call of the church to relationship with one another And the central aspect of those relationships is how we communicate to and especially about one another. Now, Next week, our entire worship service is going to be devoted to the Lord's table, communion. And the following week is Easter. And then the first Sunday in April, April the 3rd, we'll return to the series that we had been in, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Today, let's ask God to help us as we look at how we are to communicate. Father, thank you for this blessed day, the Lord's Day. It's called the Lord's Day because it was the day, the first day of the week, that you rose. In two weeks, we will celebrate that with Christians the world over. 
But each Sunday, the Lord's Day, we're reminded that we serve a risen Savior. Who is alive and powerful and who is coming again. And to whom we owe our entire lives and our allegiance every moment of every day. So help us, Lord, in this sacred time as we look at your word to think about the fact that you are Lord, Lord of all, Lord of every aspect of our lives. Help us to take seriously, then, this gift of communication that you have provided so that we use it for the ends that you've given it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we say in your outline that we must recognize, and here's a fourth thing that we must recognize about communication, and that is the mastery of communication, the mastery of communication. Verse 7 in James 3 says this, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. Verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. Now, I've worded the points in the outline last week and this week with the word communication rather than speech just to emphasize that in our day, we have the means of electronic communication. And so it's not just what we verbally say, but it is all the means that we use that are at our disposal in communication. And here in verse 7, the animal kingdom can be, can be and is controlled by humanity. And that's because at creation, God gave a mandate to Adam and in turn to us to subdue the earth and to rule it. The passage that was our scripture reading earlier in the service from Hebrews 2 says, in putting everything under them, that is under these human beings that God made a little lower than the angels, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So we were given a mandate at creation to to rule God's world and represent him on, on earth. And at the beginning, before the entrance of sin into God's good world, animal life was benevolently ruled by man, and that animal life was in harmony with humanity. But of course, that's not the world that we know now, is it? Sin had effects in our relationship with God, in our relationships with one another, and our relationship with our world, including the animal world. So instead of the tranquil and harmonious relationship between man and animals, That was at the beginning. We now live in a world which Alfred Lord Tennyson said, nature is red, that is bloody, in tooth and claw. We fear animals and they fear us. But in the future kingdom, all that was originally will be restored. The paradise that was lost in the garden will be the paradise regained in the kingdom. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this future kingdom when all will be restored. And he spoke of animals and humanity. And he said, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will be a restoration of what originally was. But in the meantime, animals have to be, they have to be tamed. Now, I have found that my dog owner friends, 
think that we are in the kingdom now. And the reason I say that is because every dog owner has a dog that doesn't bite. In fact, I wonder how dog bites ever occur, given that there are millions of non-biting dogs out there. Every, every dog owner I have ever met says, oh, don't worry. What? He won't bite. Truth is, they can and, and do bite. But we can subdue them. And we have to subdue them with things like leashes and dog houses, tranquilizers. I can think of a bunch of ways to. But in contrast to that, the mastery of the tongue is that it's not controlled by us. That's not the mastery of the tongue that we control it, but rather that the tongue controls us. Even though we can control most things, including the animal world, that's what verse 7 and 8 are saying. Verse 8 says, no human being can tame the tongue. That lack of control is seen in the next point and the next portion of this passage. We have to recognize the mastery of communication. That is the control that the tongue has over us. So verse, the first part of verse 8 says, no one can control it. But we also have to recognize the inconsistency of communication. There's the mastery of the tongue in communication, but then there's the inconsistency of communication. Middle of verse 8. It, the tongue, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. One commentator has said the word restless means always liable to break out. As if the tongue were an untamed, half-tamed, or poorly, poorly tamed beast. Accepting for a time its imposed res- restrictions and then suddenly turning savage. Sadly, we acknowledge within the bounds of personal experience how well James knows human nature and the tongue. Looking back into the past, there are very many deeds we would like to go back and leave undone. But there are those are vastly outnumbered by the words we would now wish unsaid. And this is not always the hasty, angry word either, but often the pondered word. The word meant kindly, but all of them, whether hostile or with loving intent, now seen as the unpredictable outbreaking of this restive tongue. I know for myself... I find myself, after I've been in the presence of people, sometimes afterwards rehearsing in my mind what it was I said. And rehearsing whether or not what I said came off as was intended. I'll rehearse a quip or a comment and I wonder why I said that. And there are times where I've had to go back and ensure that no offense was taken. I'm sure you've had the same experience. And James is very concerned that Christian practice be consistent with Christian profession. And this use of the tongue is a major part of that. Going back to chapter 1 and verse 8, this book speaks of the problem of being what's called double-minded and unstable. And that disconnect between what we are and how we behave is often seen in how we use our tongues. Because verse 9 of chapter 3 says, we use it for both praise of God and cursing of others. So we have the ability to be that inconsistent 
in who we profess to be and yet in what we practice. We have the ability of using the same instrument for different and inconsistent purposes. In praising our Lord and Father, yet cursing others, we display the incomplete kind of religion that James warned of back in chapter 1. If you just turn back a page, chapter 1 and verse 26. We saw this last week that those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So here we are, religious types. (laughs) But James examines our religion and our religiosity and he focuses on keeping a tight rein on the tongue. And in chapter 3, it says, you know, we can praise the Lord God, and yet we can curse those who are made in the image of God. If you praise Jesus, then why speak negatively of others who are made in God's image? And all the more those who are, are being remade into God's image. And yet, if we're honest, that's a regular temptation for us. The Bible speaks of the fact that we are in the same family with Jesus. So if I would never say negative things about God, I should not be in the business of saying negative things about those who bear God's image. Hebrews 2 says this, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, the word cursing in verse 9 is not just curse words as we would think of it, but rather it's the opposite of praising. So you say, I'm off the hook in verse 9, I don't don't curse, but that's not what we normally think of curse words. It's, It's just the opposite of praising someone. It's the opposite of ascribing good and positive to another. And so thinking about it that way, it's simply a matter of speaking negatively for failure to speak positively about others. We look around at our brothers and sisters, whether in the human family at large or in the family of God, and yet it's so easy to think nothing of defaming, of denigrating, of criticizing, making the sly innuendo, and yet all the while we're doing that of people, the Bible says, bear the image of God. That's why the saying that my mom taught me and many of you have been taught, if you can't say, what, anything good, right? At the end of verse 10, it says this should not be. It means this is inconsistent with the purpose for which God gave this ability to communicate. It's not what our communication ability is intended for. So one major way for us to avoid doing that is to be in regular thought about who it is, the station, the position of those about whom we're speaking. They are made in the image of God. And he reminds us at the end of verse 10 that these are brothers and sisters being remade into the image of God. And they are Jesus' brothers and sisters. So verse 10 says, my brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. It's a reminder of whose family we are in. And that phrase, brothers and sisters, is used 12 times in just these five chapters of the book of James. Now We sang about it this morning in the song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, that has the line in it, I don't know if you noticed it, internalized it, but it says, how could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? You see, friends, we sang that just a bit ago. Do we really mean that? 
How could I now dishonor with my tongue those that you have loved, who you have made in your image and remaking in your image? We must recognize the mastery of communication, the inconsistency of communication, thirdly in your outline. We must recognize the effects of communication, the effects. Verse 11 says this, Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The tongue's pollution, not its sweetness, is what most often prevails. Its pollution, its bitterness, not its sweetness. The question James asks in verse 11 expects the answer no. And for a very obvious reason. So suppose you had two separate sources of water that flowed together into the same pipe. One of them was sweet water, the other spoiled and unpalatable in some way. We would never know the double source because the bitter flavor would prevail, wouldn't it? And that is what would prove to be the stronger element. That is what would leave its mark. And so the tongue needs guarding lest it leave a bitter taste behind it wherever it makes itself felt. Now, practically, what that means is you can say, you and I can say all kinds of positive things. But what is it that's remembered? It's that negative thing, isn't it? The negative, not the positive, is what's remembered and felt, no matter the percentage of the one versus the other. And so we have to be aware of that. We've got to be fully aware of when we speak and when we speak negative words, whether directly to someone and certainly to someone else about someone, that it's those negative comments that are remembered. So you've got to recognize we do the mastery and the inconsistency and the effects. And then in your outline, the source of communication. The source. Verse 12 says this. My brothers and sisters, notice again, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, this is different from the illustration uh, that was in the prior verse in verse 11. The one in verse 11 is concerned with what's produced by the tongue. And this one is about where it comes from, the source. Plants. Bear fruit according to their kind. The Bible teaches that what is at the root will bear fruit and determine what kind of fruit is born. And Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And here's why. For because out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. So in biblical anatomy, in the way the Bible looks at our bodies and how they are to be yielded to God and the members of our bodies are to be used For God's purpose. In biblical anatomy, the tongue is connected to the heart. It's out of the heart, which the Bible uses as the center, the control center of the person. It's out of that 
that the mouth speaks. Now, I've gone through that outline fairly quickly. And you guys are all thinking, wow, I'll get to sleep a little bit. But I have a fairly long conclusion to this. I want to go through with you what the Bible says about these areas that we must acknowledge, we must recognize. But then in summarizing these last two weeks on this issue, this all-important issue of communication, I want to make sure that we make proper application of it. The problem with our speaking is its source, and that source is our hearts. That source is not external to us, it is internal to us. The reason I speak the way I do is because of what is in me, not because of what someone is doing outside of me. It's not because of my circumstances that are outside of me. It is, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what is in me. The source is the heart. Heart. And the Bible has much to say about the heart as the control center of the individual. Famously in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And then Jeremiah says as well, asking the question, can the leopard change its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Well, this is all very hopeful, isn't it? You know, my heart is, is, is so dark and black and, and, and who can know it? Deceitful above all things. The leopard can't change its spots, so we can't do good. And then in James, we're told the tongue cannot be tamed. <laughs> so what can be done? Is there any hope here? Well, indeed, of course, the gospel is good news. And the good news is there is hope. Because when James says the tongue cannot be tamed, it means the tongue cannot be tamed by mere human nature. The tongue cannot be tamed by self-will or on our own. It's not just a matter of us learning to bite our tongues or learning some skills. Now, I want to give you some, some skills, but it's not just and even first a matter of that. If the tongue is going to be tamed, and if according to biblical anatomy, the tongue is connected to the heart, then it means the heart is going to have to be changed. And the good news is there is someone who can do that. Now, I'm going to remind you of that. But before I do... Just ask yourself, in the way I speak, do I evidence that I have a heart that has been changed? In the way I speak to and about others, is there evidence that my heart has been changed? But God changes the heart. Going back to the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And in John chapter 1, John says, To all those who received them, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And he goes on to say how they, how they became children of God. Yes, it was there. They believed in him. But then he says, children who were born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
So what happens is God regenerates the individual. They are given new life. The heart is changed. That's the person then who believes in his name, believes in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it changes them from the inside out. One of the things I appreciate about the Getty songs, we sang a few of them today, is that they connect the truths they convey to God and more specifically to the cross. And so we sang beneath the cross of Jesus. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus? See the children called by God. But they have another song, the power of the cross, that says every bitter thought and every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross. So Jesus died so you, so I could be changed. And it's the Spirit of God that changes us from the inside out, giving us new life and a new heart. We believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so it's not, friends, that the tongue cannot be controlled. It's that it can't be controlled by us. It can be controlled by the power of the Spirit of God that every genuine believer has. So what's the first step in you getting it together with your tongue, me getting it together with my tongue? The first step is you've got to be a child of God. The first step is you've got to be regenerate. You've got to be born again. You've got to have a new heart. God gives that heart to those who believe. They believe rightly about who they are. You realize that you're a sinner. Your sin is shown in all sorts of ways, including the way you talk. You recognize who Jesus is and what he did. God the Son died and paid the penalty for your sin. He lived the life that you should have lived, died the death that you deserved. He is risen. He is coming again. You recognize who Jesus is and what he did. You repent. Lord, I am going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we finish, we're going to have a time of prayer. And when we bow our heads, then it is time for you to acknowledge your belief in who you are as a sinner and who God is as God the Son, having done for you what you couldn't. And you can do that now. And God promises to regenerate. God makes new, gives a new heart to those who believe in him. Now, for those who have done that, for those who are sure I'm a child of God, there's evidence in my life that I'm a child of God, but I'm struggling with this issue of my tongue, then I've got some practical suggestions for you as well. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The Journal of Biblical Counseling gives five different types of person that uses their tongue in harmful ways. Five kinds of misuse of the tongue, and then they give a motivation for why people do this, these five types of people do it, and then a solution to it. I'd like to go through those with you. There is, first of all, the type of person who uses their tongue in harmful ways that they call the informer. The informer. This is the person who likes to know what's going on, 
And they like for people to know that you know what's going on. So you're always full of information. You're always passing on information. Maybe information about other people. Maybe information you shouldn't be passing on. But you like to know what's going on. And you like for people to know you do. And what's the motivation for that? It's power because information is power. And the solution is in Ephesians 1.19. His incomparably great power. The power that is at work within us. So there is the informer who just likes to make sure everybody knows I know what's going on, likes to be in the circle of the knowing. And then there is the grumbler. The grumbler complains. The grumbler criticizes. When he's, when he's upset about something and misery likes company, he'll talk about others behind their backs. This kind of harmful communication can be found in nearly every workplace and in every family, in every city, in every school, and I might add every church. We love to grumble and complain about authority figures, about parents, teachers, politicians, pastors. We often euphemistically call this venting. And yet there's no constructive purpose in this kind of talk and no love in the speaker's heart, just grumbling. What's the motivation? It's often jealousy. I should be in that position of authority. I should be running things. The solution is to be content in any and every situation, a la Philippians 4. There's the informer. There's the grumbler. There's the backstabber. Like the grumbler, the backstabber is full of complaint, but his heart is angrier, more hateful. Backstabbing gossip overflows from a malicious heart that's bent on revenge and retaliation. The backstabber actually desires the target of his gossip to experience pain. The backstabber usually begins by spreading lies, starting a sort of smear campaign. Or a backstabber will hurt someone by spreading a shameful truth. It may be true, but it shouldn't be spread. Love, on the other hand, covers the warts in another's reputation. Backstabbers not only uncover the warts, they go and tell everybody else about them. The motivation very often is revenge. The backstabber has somehow been foiled, perhaps hurt or damaged, and now is angry. And what's the solution? The solution is waiting and trusting the justice of God. God can take care of that person. I don't have to go on a vengeance campaign against them. So there's the informer, the grumbler, the backstabber, the chameleon. The chameleon. This person gossips to fit in with other gossips. Just not to be left out. The motivation is the fear of man. That is, they revere the opinions of other people. They want to fit in. They want to be... Pleasing to others. If they do it, I'll do it. The solution is the fear of the Lord. Reverence for the Lord more than reverence for people. And then the fifth and final one. You've got the informer, the grumbler, the backstabber, the chameleon. You've got the busybody. The busybody has nothing better to do but talk on the phone or private message or whatever vehicle of communication. The motivation is entertainment. It's something to do. The solution is 
to rather than spend time wasted like that is to use that time engaging in intentional acts of love and service for others. So the first suggestion that I have for you is for us to each identify our characteristic ways of sinning with our tongues. Maybe you're more than one of these, but all of us tend toward at least one of them. So which one are you? Now, I don't love you enough to have those printed out for you. So if you want them, email me and I'll send them to you so that you can identify that and remember it. So the first thing is identify your characteristic ways of sinning with your tongue. Here are some other practical suggestions. Remember this, friends. Words are sacred. Our words matter, and and Christian mouths and Christian tongues are set apart, sacred. Our words are to be used for the purpose for which this communication ability was given to us by God. So words are sacred. And further, thirdly, people are sacred. People are made in the image of God. That's what James says in verse 10. That these are people made in God's image about whom you are are speaking. Now, sometimes I get the question. I've had this a few times over the years. You know, there are situations where somebody comes and says, Hey, I need your advice about... My situation was so-and-so. So now I'm brought into a situation that I didn't initiate. Someone else initiated it, asking me to counsel them. What do I do with that? Because in the course of that, this person is going to say these negative things about this other person. So what do I, so what do, I do? Well, in keeping with the fact that people are sacred... I recommend to you that if the person about whom you are speaking is not there, you only talk about them as if they were. You only say to another party what you would say to them if they were sitting there. One. But here's the other thing, and importantly, you intend to bring them in. That is, yes, I will give you counsel about this situation you're having with this other person. But I will only say what I know about that person as if they were sitting here, one. And two, understand, we're going to bring that person into the room. So this is not going to be just us yapping about whoever it is. I had, I've had to do this over the years. Years ago, at our parent church, there was a group of people who were giving our senior pastor, Pastor Thomas there, a very difficult time. A very difficult time. We found out later that they would talk to him negatively about me and to me negatively about him in order to try to create a wedge between the two of us. Thankfully, both of us practice these kind of ethics. And on one occasion, they wanted to get together with me to talk about him. And I said, I'll get together with you. But you need to understand, and I laid down these rules. And he's going to know that we're getting together. We're not getting together behind his back. You want advice from me? I'll give you advice. But I'm not going to do it behind his back. And further, the advice I give you is going to culminate with us getting together with him. So remember, friends, words are sacred. People are sacred. 
If they're not there, speak about them as if they were. And if they're not there, it is your intent, your stated intent to bring them into the room. And then understand, lastly, this. Not only are people sacred, but people are sinful. Of course, that includes you. That includes me. But that includes the people with whom you are speaking in negative ways. Because here's what I've seen. We tend to dismiss our own sins of the tongue in part because of the group of people with whom we do it. They're good people. So therefore, it can't be that bad. (laughs) Listen, if you're doing bad stuff, if you're using your tongue in negative ways, contrary to what God says, then all of the other stuff you do, all the other service you render for the Lord at church, all of the other... In fact, you may engage in that kind of speech at church. I said last week it might be in the nursery. It might be in the hallway. At church. Or on the phone during the week with people who are church types. And because we're church types, it can't be that bad because it's us. You know us. We're good. No, remember this, you're sinful. And when you sin with your tongue, you're manifesting that sinfulness. So I recommend you identify your characteristic ways of sinning with your tongue. Remember that words are sacred. People are sacred. And people are sinful as well. Now what that means for some of us is, there are some groups of people we need to go talk to maybe today Certainly this week. Next week we have the Lord's table, communion. And we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate the unity of the body. And one of the things 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to do is for us to examine our hearts and to acknowledge sin that we have before the Lord. And some, much of that sin may be sins of the tongue about other people. That needs to be gotten right this week before we participate in the Lord's table this week. And so I encourage you, friends, to do all of those things. One of the reasons I wanted to do this series, Life in the Father's House, was so that we could begin 2016 as unified as we possibly can be, understanding that when we talk about each other, we talk about each other, God is listening and that person is in the room. We do that, God is going to move this church forward. And there is nothing that can stop, I've told you this over and over again, there is nothing that can stop the advance of this church unless we allow it to. So your take-home truth at the bottom. The key to holiness is control of communication. Control of communication. We're going to bow, as we do. Those of you who have never trusted Christ, you need that new heart. You do what's on the screen. And those of you that have, but are convicted about the sin of the use of the tongue, confess that to the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you commit to Him that you're going to go to those with whom you engage in the sin of the tongue and make it right with them to move in a new direction. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your practical word. Your word is relevant to 
us every moment of every day and all of the circumstances of our lives. We thank you for the power with which it speaks to our hearts and about our hearts and what comes out of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to just discipline ourselves and turn over a new leaf and and commit to do better. But rather, your spirit has given us the power to break these strangleholds of sin. And thank you that your spirit chides us when we do sin. I thank you for the, the holy conviction that is occurring in this room right now. It comes from you, and it's for your good purpose to restore your people. And Lord, I thank you most of all that you have called us out of the world into yourself so that all of those benefits accrue to us. Your spirit's power is with us. Your spirit's conviction comes upon us when we read your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. I pray that there are people here now who are being converted, that they're being regenerated, that your spirit is moving upon their hearts, that they are born again so that now they have the power to speak in new and different and better and godly ways. Lord, this week, may there be many people, as necessary, who are speaking with one another about how they have talked to and about each other. We ask you, Lord, to bring us together next Lord's Day as we celebrate the communion, the unity, the koinonia of the body. And Lord, we will give you the praise and the honor for all that you accomplish. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.